Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. Today, I'd like to talk a little about the story behind the story. Last summer, I spent a couple days with Al Grover, now 94, who set the world record for being the first person to cross the Atlantic in an outboard-powered boat. His story fascinated me, and not just because he crossed an ocean in a 26-footer, but because of all the other human elements involved. In the end, Grover's story is about fathers and sons, a husband and wife, a man and machine against nature. Sitting with Al on those hot summer days, I couldn't get enough. And it appears that many of you feel the same way. I received a lot of positive feedback on Al's story from our summer issue, but was especially impressed by the amount of comments and feedback we received on a video we produced about him. After being online for just a couple weeks, it's garnered almost 300,000 views. I heard from a number of people clamoring for more Al. Well, ask and you shall receive. What follows is a director's cut of our time with Al that'll give you even more insight into the man that accomplished this harrowing feat. So, without further ado, I give you my friend, the legend, Al Grover. But, I don't know, maybe Al, maybe you'd like to start um, with how this, how you got started into boating actually would be a great starting point. Well, when you're looking out those windows, you're looking at Baldwin Harbor and a real fishing fleet from the old days of boats that I hung out, grew up over there. And then I started going out, even if I didn't get paid, I'd go for a day just to be on the ocean, you know? And then we moved to Freeport and I started over on the nautical bar, which was called Woodcleft Avenue, you know. Yeah. And I got working on the fishing boats. Finally, got two dollars a day for, you know, mating for a full from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And uh, still wanted to be around boats. Nothing else would interest me. And when I was 18, you got your captain's license. In those days, that was 1945. So World War II was just cranking down. And to get a captain's license today, it takes a lot of paperwork. In those days, to get a captain's license, it was all verbal. Mm -hmm. And the guys that do all the paperwork, they can't believe it. You interviewed with the Coast Guard in uh, downtown New York, and it talked to you long enough. You need three letters from three reputable captains, which were well known that you had worked for them and done so many years of experience. And with that, you get a license for 100 tons, 100 miles, license for running fishing boats. Family, Merritt's are the people that build the Merritt fish boat. Yeah, yeah. Pompano Beach, they're from Freeport originally. I know that. Yeah, and the family, the one guy that's still alive is 96 years old. Alan Merritt. Yeah, yeah. And he goes to work every day. 96. He got me, he's got me beat. So that's it. I got hooked and I was hooked all my life. Amazing. And then uh, since you got into, when did, and the yard opened, I guess it was 70 years ago, right? I mean, I saw the sign. 1950. Uh, I had been, I bought a, a Jersey skiff mm -hmm. and I was using it for cod fishing in the winter and we were going skimmering in the summer. In those days, skimmers, of course, of the war, food was short. There were dozens of boats loaded with skimmers. And I kept my boat at any place that you didn't have to pay dockage. You never thought of paying dock space for a commercial boat, you know. And the place I was docked was for sale. And my brother-in-law used to visit me weekends. He loved fresh fish. And he came down, he saw the sign, it said Reconstruction Finance. That's, uh, the government was foreclosed on this building. And he said, you're going to buy it. You go to the city, you're a veteran, you're going to get a government aid. And I didn't want it. I said, what am I going to do with this building? I don't want a building, I want to be a fisherman. But I wasn't a good fisherman. Good fishermen are born for centuries. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> that's how I got started, I, the details of going to New York and making an offer and all I can tell you, mm -hmm. or I can speed it through it, you know? Yeah, well, well maybe we'll just uh, jump ahead, because I'm, I'm definitely interested in uh, 
retelling some of the adventure, but then also what happened after that motorboat and sailing story as well. So uh, again, just just playing dumb, but how did the how did the transatlantic venture come to, come to start out? Well, between working on the, the Woodcliffs from the nineteen late thirties, forties, fifty. You know, I, and then in 1985, I'd been going to work on this nautical mile every day for how many years? You know, it wasn't boring, but I was 58, and I was looking for a little, you know, mid <laughs> midlife adventure. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I just had been doing a lot of coastal sailing, mm -hmm. and I never did cross the ocean. I crossed the Pacific, but that was on a troop ship. I mean, in my own boat, I had never crossed an ocean. So it it got to me, and I just read books. I read Joshua Slocum from Inside Out, and Francis Chichester, and all. Of, then I said, you know, I gotta try it. I I gotta try it. And I was, I, I really can't get my head in that kind of a. a, a, a thing today. I mean, that was crazy. That was really crazy, and they were crazy to go with me. So... Alright, so you decided to do this. You have the 26, and then tell me about customizing that boat for, for the mission. Well, we originally were only building diesel-powered boats, and we had a four-cylinder diesel in there for the initial runs, and I was surprised a couple of things that I didn't get the mileage, I thought, and I knew two gallons an hour is about what this little engine diesel would burn. And, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get any company backup from the manufacturer of the engine, and uh, I was talking to the guy that ran Evandrew one day talking about this trip, and he said, hey, why don't you throw a pair of Evinroots on there and we'll back you, we'll give you the engines and parts and whatever you need. And that really changed my thinking. I, up to that point, I don't think I ever considered Evinroot, uh, outboards, you mm -hmm. know. So he said, you know, you talk to the service manager there, he said, the best engines, if you're not interested in extreme horsepower, Put the three-cylinder 65s on. That's a real workhorse engine. A pair of 65s and a little 9.9 .9 for a backup. What manufacturer was the backup? It was Evinrude. Oh, it's Evinrude. They were all Evinrude's, okay. yeah. Okay. And we put the brackets on the stern, and it was really like not the way I wanted to let my boat get powered, but it did go pretty good. It slid along really easily. The engines were very economical. And I felt, talking to the Guinness Book of Records, people that knew something about it, that there were no outboard crossings that were unassisted. Mm -hmm. Years ago, in the early years of my outboard business, a boat was made by Botved in, in Europe, and a guy named Jim, Jim Wynn, Jim Wynn, and the owner of the Botved tried to do it but they were escorted by a ship, and when the weather was bad, they were hoisted on board, and for fuel supply and food and everything. They did cross, but unassisted, so I thought, wow, we could get a lot of publicity, being the first, everyone's gonna back us up. When I said, you know, how about some money to help with us? They said they'd give me four engines, which they did, and. They said, the lawyers told us we can't support you financially because you're going to drown yourselves. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, you may drown yourselves. Uh -huh. And we can't be financially involved. So that was fine. I was an Evernote dealer since the 50s. Yeah, yeah. And my customers would be impressed. Maybe they'd think outboards were more dependable. 1985, they were still not that dependable, you know, and they were very kind of inefficient with fuel. Mm -hmm. So everything worked out that we changed to outboard power for those reasons. Well, I mean, really in a nutshell, I'd love to hear the story. So you, you know, starting out, let's say you, you get the boat, you put Transatlantic on the side and you decided you're gonna do it. And you guys were off to a pretty inauspicious start. 
Well, the year tri prior, I'll just mention Please. when I was uh, using the diesel, and I was looking for a good young fellow to go with me, and I hadn't thought of the kids. And I met a guy that just graduated from Maine Maritime, and he was really up to, don't forget, there was no CBSs or GPSs. There was very, very little satellite navigating in 85, because there were very few satellites. So you had Loran and you had short-range radio. But I needed somebody strong, knowledgeable, and I asked this guy to go, and we both kind of left without notice. I told my wife, we're going to take a ride to Montauk and see how this thing works out. And then we hit Block Island, and he loved to drink and party every night, and he'd go ashore and he'd tell everyone we got to cross the ocean. And then we went up to uh, It's a good way Cape... to get free drinks, I bet. Oh, yeah, we went to Cape Cod and Provincetown. That was like the third night. And then I said, let's go for Nova Scotia, and we'll go to... Port of Basque, I think it was. And then we said, well, it's getting cold, we're in our bathing suits, you know, and no, nothing prepared, just crazy. And she flew, she drove up uh, with the kids and stuff, and she sent him home. She put, I, I could tell you his name, but I think he'd be embarrassed. I think he's in the book, actually, but and she came up and fired him. Yeah, and you, if you're going to do this, you go home, we're going to go over this thing and do it right, and you're going to take one of your sons with you to make sure you try to keep your head on. So that was the first run, and it was really, I was so kind of aggravated about all the delays. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, and years would go by, and then there'd be other reasons health-wise or something. And now you get to the point, you say, damn it. I'm going no matter what. But she said, no. <laughs> so we came back, and that's when we switched to the outboards. And we spent about a year really going over it. I got one of the first satellite navigators at Raytheon. There was only a few satellites a day to try and get a fix, and it wasn't very good, you know? So basically, we had the Loran and the uh, talking to ships, which was great, because uh, almost every ship will talk to you on a, um, what do you call a shortwave radio everybody has today, you know? Oh, VHF. VHF. Yeah. And usually the guy on duty on the ship is very happy to have someone to talk to, especially if they've been, you oh, know. Of course, especially yeah. boat that looks like yeah. yours way out there. Right. And we've made some good friends and got help. You always got to perfect correction on your navigation, your position, and the weather and everything once you get talking. Although half of the time, the guy on duty doesn't speak English. <laughs> He'd say, stand by, stand by, I'll get some English, English yeah, yeah. <laughs> interpreter. So the uh, start was delayed to try and do it right. And uh, carrying fuel, I had ordered like these inflatable tanks, uh, very heavy plastic, and without baffles and testing them, this getting five, six hundred gallons of fuel mm -hmm. sloshing around, you know, that I said, that's not going to work. I, I can't control that half full fuel tank. And then I had built my boats with 40 gallon saddle tanks, there, one on each side, and I had an inventory of those. And I said, let me see how many of those I can squeeze into my boat. So I ended up with 18 40-gallon tanks, 18. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, each tank had an outboard hose with the squeezer. Yeah, yeah. To prime. So I had 18 hoses ran from the tanks <laughs> in various parts, six tanks in the forward cabin, to my navigation station midships, and each tank had a number on the hose, you know, port one, starboard two, all the way through, so that you could draw fuel as you wanted to trim your boat. And because the 40-gallon tanks were already baffled, mm. plus they're controllable, once they're fastened in, nothing is moving. You know, those are some of the things you had to correct and find out. It, it wouldn't work the other way. So, right, right. Uh, 
the venting of a fuel tank and water in your fuel is the biggest fear of any rough water navigator who depends on sure. power. And the guy that were in my shop, he's still alive. He comes around, he ran the shop for over 50 years. He said, Al, you can't vent those tanks. Even if you vent it to the top of the masthead, you're going to get water because the, the boat's going to be exposed to bad situation. So he said, we'll take the outboard hoses and the old tanks that had the little primer on, a six-gallon tank, and it had two prongs with little O-rings. One let air in the tank, and the other took fuel out. And they were both plugged to the engine so that you could put air in the tank and draw fuel out and close every vent Got or it. anything right. that could be get water. Couldn't get water now unless the tank had a hole in it. And, you know, that's really scary to think you're going to start with your vents getting water because the boat is submerged, you know. So mm -hmm. those are things that you learn and decide to take a little more time and figure it out. Mm -hmm. So with 18 tanks, I mixed my own gas and oil. Now those engines at that time had just come out with a separate oil injection. And again, I said, you know, it's great, it's modern and saves it, makes it but disconnect it. I'm going to put six to one for 500 gallons. I'm going to sit there with a magic marker. This tank has 38 gallons and six quarts of oil wow. to make sure. Yeah, I don't be doing, no experimenting on no, this. No, I mean, you run a, the oil pump stops and you're running an engine with no oil. You're going to seize it up. That's the end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we worked on those crazy things and it worked out. We disconnected the the rudder from the normal hookup, because this was an inboard diesel. Oh, yeah, So yeah. the point is, if you take a pair of big engines, I figured they were big to me, 65s, and you hook them up, there's a lot of friction required to turn them. They yeah. weren't using hydraulics or anything. You were using push-pull cables. And that would use up a lot of energy because the autopilot, which you have to have, is question. constantly fighting this thing. So we locked the engines dead ahead. We hooked the autopilot to the rudder, which was still in the boat. Ah. And the rudder is so easy to move because there's no 200 pounds of iron. So just to be clear, your autopilot ran the rudder. Didn't right. Touch the, didn't touch the outboard. Two engines were dead ahead. We wow. All I mean, that makes more sense. Yeah, well, uh, we do. For instance, you're going on one engine at a time yeah. because you right. can't double your mileage by running the second engine. So yeah. you tilt one up mm -hmm. and you run the other one until either you could hear the plugs were getting fouled, you could hear it because you came so loose. This is 24 hours a day. Yeah. You don't stop at night. Right, right. So we found the plugs were getting little tiny red rusty spots on them. And then we'd decide to change plugs. Mm -hmm. So we'd run one engine, tilt the other engine up. If the weather was good, you'd work your way to the stern, take the engine hood off, turn it, change the plugs. So things like that, you uh, didn't anticipate, but we had plenty of spare plugs and parts. Sure, you know. sure. So we ended up mix our own oil, uh, get rid of the ability to change those engines because we had four 12-volt batteries, four, pretty healthy. But I didn't understand, again, the damn 65s only had like 10-amp alternators. So now we're running all of this electronics, and we're, uh, we're not running the big engine, but we are running the—so uh, our batteries weren't Draining. keeping yeah. up. And once they get below like 11 volts or something, the electronics are all screwed up. You don't get true readings again. Mm -hmm. So we figured disconnect the three batteries because we had switches on them yeah. and keep one healthy battery, you know, charge it up. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that, getting rid of the venting of fuel tanks, keeping your batteries charged and the experience of steering the boat 
uh, it all it all kind of summarized years of you know I was in the business all my life, so I'm in the 70 years I know nothing. <laughs> There's Dante, but you just learn you learn by hard luck experience, you yeah, know, yeah. not not reading a book. So when we. There's a lot of other things we did. We carried a small steady and sail forward, which you might have seen in the picture. It was not much bigger than, actually, it was a sunfish mast, you know, a sunfish with no cables That's or crazy. stays, and a small steady and sail. And when it blew real hard, I could reach that from the hatch. The only way we got in and out of the cabin is the top hatch. Everything aft was solid, closed, and after the cabin was closed, the rear deck was covered with canvas. Yeah, and right, right. Under the canvas were the air tanks, which I had called fuel tanks, and my wife said, why don't you inflate them, since you already paid for them? <laughs> And lash him on the stern deck for great buoyancy. Is your wife's idea? Yeah. Genius. Yeah, and so they had big grommets on there to lash him down, and the deck was covered with canvas. But now, this bubble of air—these were several hundred-gallon tanks—up in the top. If the boat did a 180, if she did capsize, the buoyancy of those. Yeah air tanks trying to fl float would, we failed to be a good help. But the other thing we didn't consider was the fact that the following seas breaking over the stern are absorbed by this cushion of air. You know, these tanks were somewhat mushy, you know? Yeah. So a few hundred gallons of water would break over the stern and it would be just shed, you know, by a little resiliency and then, that's all sort of stuff that you learn. And a lot of guys called me after the trip with a different advice, you know. Mm -hmm. Most of them were running fast boats. And I said, how does your boat drift? And oh, what do you get? What's the difference? I said, when you get in something like a hurricane, you're not gonna run. You're not gonna, your props are out of the water, you can't control. You're just gonna lay a hull. Are you going to use a sea anchor? Are you going to let it run following seas? Well, most of them hadn't. Of that. And that's really survival. How does it, when everything else is done and you're in a storm, the boat is like a piece of driftwood, right? And how does it re react to that, you know? So I'm getting off the subject. You have, not, to, no, have, have, no, that's, you have to guide me a little bit. No. I mean that's that's great background. I mean maybe maybe we'll just we'll just fast forward to uh, you know the, the start of the adventure. You got you know you got some of the kinks worked out. You're you're heading north. Right. Well, we there. the big mistake, very foolish. We've got to take two boats. I don't know if you realize that. We had a 26 and a 24, and in my mind the second boat was a safety factor. Figured. If everything goes wrong with the first boat, the second one. Now, I was going to take the second boat. And Who I was? was? Al, my son. He was, okay. Yeah, and I was going to take the first boat. So and you guys were going to be solo, but well, together. Well, yeah, we both had good men that had worked for us. Young kids were young kids. They weren't getting paid. They were just dreaming about having a trip like that. Oh, they were But they were good mechanics. So each one had a backup man, so two men in a boat. Boats were rigged up and tested, and they were on trailers on Woodcliffe. A lot of publicity and fanfare. And then we're going to tow them to St. John's, Newfoundland, because that's where Lindbergh <laughs> passed his last fall, last landfall, going to Europe. You know, because as you see it, you know, Nova Scotia is out here, and Ireland's over here. This is the shortest connection. And we towed him up, we left here at night and we were going up to, through Maine and we were towing him with blazers, Chevy blazers, and just quite a heavy load for, but the guy had to be on the ball, especially as far as them starting that jackknife and this fish tailing. One boat 
got out of control and he jackknifed and the boat flipped off the trailer, went into a ravine and was damaged beyond help for that trip. And that night I called my wife and I said, that's it, we're done. And then Al and I sat down with the crew. We got to a motel and we said, you know, we got one boat left. Let's take everything that we can use off the other boat and Al and I will go with the one boat. Now that was a blessing. Two boats could never, ever stay together in bad weather. At night, fog, rain, hurricanes, gales, you'd be chasing each other around the ocean. I wonder if he's okay, let's find him. That was absolutely an impossible way to go. So the good Lord decided to get rid of that one boat for us and we, we just got all the gear together and we sent the rest of the guys home that we didn't need, I only needed Al. Mm -hmm. And we went up through, uh, got up the Maine in Nova Scotia and in Nova Scotia the transmission blew on the towing vehicle. And I was in a service place and I said, where's the nearest water? And he says, a town called Pick Two, Nova Scotia. And I said, you, will you tow my boat with your wrecker to, to pick two? Is there a boatyard there? He said, yes, the guy knew. So again, the car was left. <laughs> this is a string of detours. It's a tough start. <laughs> and we're in Nova Scotia in, in pick two. And he takes the boat off the trailer. And we leave the car and we leave the trailer. And uh, we started from pick two, Nova Scotia. And we went through. Uh, to Newfoundland and then I had been in St. Pierre once before and I realized it's really one of the nicest islands as far as there's a lot of Newfoundland that is very backward 35 years ago and I was trying to get fuel sometimes and they give it to you out of a 35 gallon drum or something you know and they have rules you don't sell fuel to pleasure boats, you know, they actually have color in some of the fuel. Did you ever hear that up there? Because they were short on fuel, I guess. So we decided to leave from the island of St. Pierre, and that's off the coast of Newfoundland. And that's where they sent the fuel truck down to the dock this fuel truck and I topped off all my tanks with the oil mix and all at that point and we met a we're at the dock and there's a sailboat just ahead of us everyone speaks French there I mean a little English but they're basically French and this guy comes over where are you going I said I'm going to Europe and he looks down at this little boat and he says look crazy but he said we're going too he had a 60-foot sailboat catch he was delivering for somebody. And he said, we'll keep in touch on the radio because we won't be together because he's trying to sail and I'm powered. So we left there after a big party. And boy, I want to tell you, I was really, <laughs> you know, I mean, are we really going now? And I said, it's now or never, you know, you can't change your mind now. You never go home. <laughs> I'd have to go hide someplace. So we left from uh, St. Pierre on August 1st, 1985, knowing it's the hurricane season and saying, it's time, now or never. And the first night out was pretty good. During the day, it was beautiful. I was listening, by the way, the Lorraine signals up in the Canadian area were better than our signals here. They lasted further out in the ocean, like a oh, thousand miles. Wow. Yeah, and uh, that night I heard a couple of boats talking. Did you hear about the storm coming? We got a real northeaster, you know, a big low coming through. And I said, oh boy, first night. And it started to blow and blow and blow, and we were really miserable. I mean, we hadn't really got used to this. And uh, the following morning, we were <laughs> both said, what do you think? I said, I'm not up to it. We didn't sleep all night. We're wet, we're cold, but it's blowing northeast. And I said, if I try to go back, 
these outboards are going to be cavitating out of the water. I had this thing about the island off there, which is Sable Island. Yeah. You know about yeah, it. You know? Yeah. And now I'm not sure where we are, and I may have to quarter it or, or run in a beam sea because I can't head into it. And that damn island had been the graveyard from so many ships. And I said, in the middle of the night, I'm running blind, you know. And period, if we had been able to quit, we would have quit. That's, now that you can leave out, but you don't have to. But I mean, that's how the realism hit you. Yeah. Everything else is great stories. We're going to do this. We're going to, then you're wet and cold and tired. And the boat had been taking water all night. And these electric pumps, you could hear them go on. You know, they float operated. And the pump would go on, and then it would run for a while to go up. I said, Alan, damn, a lot of water coming in. You can't figure it. Well, we had put the pump discharges in the top plank, which we felt is normal. And these planks were submerging. And there was no check valve on the discharge of a water pump. Mm -hmm. Not Maybe there would be for the, Someone knew better. We we never water pump shuts the water overboard. That's the end. She had three water pumps, probably three quarter inch discharge or more, and every time we were submerged, water was coming back. So Al got under the deck and under the rear tanks, and he found the pumps and he plugged somehow or other. We kept kept the water from coming aboard. I don't recall kinking it or putting a flapper valve on it or something. But that was really a miserable night. And then to hear these pumps going on, I say, I can't believe it. This boat has never leaked a drop. But she's taking water. And that was that was all enough to sober us up and say, let's forget this damn thing. Wow. But there was no going back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might. You physically couldn't. You, you, couldn't you would have run out of, not, you couldn't run out of all the fuel, but you would have wasted a lot of fuel. Mm -hmm. And and I got the French captain on the phone, Captain Claude. He had two people. He had a woman with a name Maya, a French lady, and Pierre, his uh, first mate, and didn't speak much English. But he'd get on, oh, Captain Grover, Grover, no problem, no problem, he's no problem. And you must, you must. And I told him I'm going to quit. No, you must. We, we wait. We, we, we will be here. And then I'd sing, darling, je vous aime beaucoup. <laughs> oh, lovely and rose, you know. What does that mean? I don't know. It's French songs. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Sounds nice. <laughs> and uh, they were sort of encouraging. And we weren't in sight because he's already disappeared someplace. And probably made you feel not, not feel so alone, right? It, make, it makes a difference. Just, uh, no, well, he says, we wait. We will wait. We, But we, uh, we never stayed together. And then... Uh, I fell overboard, you know. Yes, that yeah. was stupid. That was, can we can we jump to that? Jump we can, that but you know, again, not thinking. You know, this was like the tenth day out, and now we tried to make four hours on and four hours off, and we couldn't stay awake for four hours. It was torture to stay. So we said, let's say two hours on and two hours off, and we could stay awake that long. And that probably doesn't sound right, but for some reason, you, it was tough to stay away. Sure. And uh, I decided to put down the, the little engine, the 9.9, .9, which didn't have a power tilt. Now, the big engines come standard with electric power tilts. You could tilt them up, yeah. start them from the cabin, put them down. The little engine, you had to go back. And we had three or four rules now. You never leave the cabin unless you wake up the other guy. The other guy's on the floor between fuel tanks down at the bottom of the little boat. And I looked down there and he's sleeping so soundly. Oh, the poor guy, leave him alone. You never leave without a life jacket. 
you never leave without your safety hook or the cable that we're in from bow to stern is snap on so if you go overboard you know and other things that you've learned and sometimes it might be a headache but it's not bad to drag 50 to 100 foot of half inch nylon behind the boat if you don't go overboard then you're lucky enough to swim to that hook of line you can hang on to it you're not going to back up and get it in the props but under normal conditions that line would keep clear and it would be a safety i didn't obey any of those so i went out you had to do a toe dance along the gunnel because the back was covered and then I got to this engine. Now, if you remember the little engines, they had a click when you tilted it. You clicked it up by hand, it got click, and it would stay at that position. To get it down, you first had to pull up, and that would release it, and or you could do it by hand. I forgot all about that, and I started pushing that engine. This is a little engine, right? 10, 9.9. Pushed down is now damn thing isn't going. I'm getting madder and madder. Finally, somehow I must have jiggled it, and when I pushed the last time, I had my whole body going in that direction. The engine flopped down, and I did a flip over the engine. <laughs> Boy, did I yell! Al says he heard me. I doubt it. I think something woke him up, and he stuck his head out of the cabin. He sees me swimming behind. Him. It was a good day, nice weather, no no storm and daylight. Those are good factors, right? So he couldn't make a tight turn now because the engines are stuck and the, the rudder is a secondary effect. I mean, there's no prop blast, you know, to give it stiff resistance. So he's making a big circle. And I figured he'd think, oh, there's a good chance to get rid of the old man, you know? <laughs> We circled back. I climbed on board, and we talked about that. And we so said, did circle back. It made one big, long, yeah, long, long turn. circle. Because he said, well, I back down. I don't want to back and reverse the, the guy swimming in yeah, turbulence. Right, yeah. So it was so foolish. I mean, anyone would say, you got to be stupid to I mean, do that. So, I mean, you get back on board. You're catching your breath. I mean, you guys just looking at each other. Like, what was that like? Well, it, I was damn glad he turned around. <laughs> say, say the favorite son. Huh? <laughs> yeah. But those are things you do because, uh, well, I've been 10 days out at that time. And it's like guys that were in combat, you know. I mean, not that that's that stressful, but you don't have any normal wake and eating and sleeping in hours and you you're really not thinking right a lot of times you, and I can't understand why I did that because I tell you you're out of your mind if you did that I would probably say I'll never have you on a boat with me but that's that was really not a good thing probably a combination of fatigue and then also Maybe a little bit of complacency. There was like 10 full days in. and Yeah, I, I don't know why, but I just defied all the safety rules that we had made up. I'd say, we got to do it this way. So I'm not proud of that. I'm pretty proud that I got back. Well, it's foolish to, uh, to admit that you did a lot of bad mistakes. It's not foolish to admit it. It's foolish that it happens and if you don't admit it but well, this this wasn't the end of kind of the, the the life and death struggle you guys it you guys hit a hurricane well a couple the, of days after that yeah the 17th of august hurricane claudette now hurricanes we came used to the fact that they begin the caribbean and come towards florida and up the coast probably not realizing there are a lot of them that go up to Europe. And this one had come through oh, boy, the islands and uh, Bermuda, mm -hmm. and then headed for the Azores, mm -hmm. which is 800 miles off of Portugal. Yeah. And it, it was unusual that uh, we didn't think, we think, okay, there's a hurricane, everybody's going to go to Florida. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the, America, we we own, we own the hurricanes, but we don't see 
<laughs> we found out we didn't. So then Claude got on the radio. He had a single side band, and so did we. That was very good, 24 hours. I could call my wife on the phone, you know. Which is amazing. Oh, my God, I get a big antenna. Yeah, yeah. And when I would transmit at night, the, the dashboard would light up. That's you know? cool. And the guys doing the installation said, don't hold your hand on that antenna. When you transmit, you'll really get whacked. Wow. <laughs> but I was so surprised that it worked so well. Yeah. And I could talk, it was, we had a date at six o'clock every night. You'd get the um, Marine radio, and they were stationed down off Atlantic City. World, long lines, long lines. And any ship, any place could get to long lines, and then they'd hook you to a telephone. Wow. And then I you could that. talk, but they'd change frequencies until they got you clear, you know? So I could call her, but she didn't know that every ship could hear her, you know? And she thought we had done a private call. Uh-oh. <laughs> I miss you, honey, please go home. <laughs> Guys on the ship, who the hell have we oh. got here, you know? <laughs> it's that crazy American again. It's got so, Freeport. <laughs> the uh, Long Lines people, I think it's AT&T runs it. It's uh, near Atlantic City in the Meadows town. We came back, and they had been so, so helpful filling her in. The, one night, the guy called, and uh, he said, uh, by the way, your husband just gave you the wrong position. The latitude, longitude is wrong. And she said, who is this? Who's been listening? Oh, my God. And he said, uh, hey, Abby? Yeah? Come on in a second. Say hello, will you? We've married 68 years. Wow. We got married in 1953. When I said I quit, I'm going home. She's the one that told me. You're fighting. I wasn't going to listen to it anymore. It's saying you're, you're going. That's... And Dante said to you, I don't want to go. And you said, you're going, right? And then she flew over and picked us up. We had a big reception in Lisbon, Lisbon Portugal. But did so, you come out for the half for the the transfer of the two sons? So like when when Al went back and then Dante came on, did you come out for the Azores at all, or you just I said I'll see you at the end? No, I knew that they'd be all right from the Azores on. Yeah, yeah. No, well, <coughs> he went got lost, and uh, I know you don't hear too well. So his question was, did you come to the Azores to bring Dante and take Al home? That's right. No, I didn't go there. I just sent, gave him money and said, go. That's it. <laughs> go. Go get your dad across the way. Al, you're back. So she suffered with this thing, you know. I'm sure. And I think when she told me you must finish, she felt, if I come home, I mean, I know I would have been. You're going to be grouchy forever. Oh, That's grouchy. Not... Oh, grouchy isn't the word. <laughs> Oh, but she said he's coming home for lunch. I'm making his lunch. Okay. okay. So I'm giving them a lot of baloney. All, all, all lies. Would I'm you sure. like to summarize? Sure. Would you like to summarize quickly a, a wife's view? See, once they want to know why I did it. Because you're crazy. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> That's, that's, you know, right to the point. I think we're done here. I think, uh, I, I think we have the story, so you summed it up beautifully. All right. He had this idea in his head for years, but uh, he thought he was going to go to Ireland. He was going to jump islands. And he went the year before, no, two years before, and tried it. And there was no way in the summer they had. Drifters. I figured you go to Greenland and then Iceland and the Faroe Islands and then the Shetland Islands, hopscotch across that route. You only had like 500 mile runs without a fuel stop. But once we flew, we, we chartered a plane from Reykjavik in Iceland and flew to Greenland and all we saw was solid ice. I mean, no way you could yeah, get... Yeah, work. No, that, that route... Gas facilities, nothing. Greenland was the worst. That would be for the Vikings. <laughs> they, like they made it. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. 
I'm embarrassed, Mom. You're making me feel like <laughs> I were a wacko. No, not in front of my friends. <laughs> oh, too funny. You researched it pretty well. Yeah, you made me research it. Iceland, Greenland. Yeah, it wasn't. It just looked great on the map, but it wasn't possible. Ireland would be a great destination to finish off, and you're in Ireland, you start a vacation. What a I, party, I, huh? I get it, yeah. Well, my background is Irish, so I felt that would... We did go to Portugal and Spain, Norway. We went to Norway, you know, with the oh, boat. Yeah. Uh, did you? Well, the whole purpose, I try to write it off as a business expense. To, We've been trying to figure out how to do that for years. It's well, to promote Evan Rood Motors mm -hmm. in the 100th anniversary of... The Evinrude Motor Company, started by Ole Evinrude, who came from Norway as an immigrant, a very young, and he, Ralph Evinrude was his son, and he, she married Francis Langford, this great singer from World War II, who went with Bob Hope on all these veterans tours. But to go to Ole Evinrude's birthplace with Evinrude power, for the first crossing of the Atlantic, to me, was a perfect public relations deal. And Did you tell them that they wouldn't finance it? Yeah. They gave you the motors, but they said they wouldn't finance it because you were committing suicide. <laughs> I like the way you tell the story better. That's a, you, we, we gotta get you in here. Straight to the point. So, uh, you, you know, at 60, eight years marriage, she reads my mind. Can you tell me what I was just saying? Because I forgot. <laughs> we, were, we were just getting into the hurricane. Okay, but she added that we did oh, finish yes. a trip all first. the way to Norway to right, right. Ole Evinrude's birthplace. And Ole was a tenant farmer, mm -hmm. and his name was Ole Olsen. But his farm, when we got there in Norway, was named Evan Rudd, without the E. In Norwegian, it means the good land. So when he got to Ellis Island, as a lot of people did, they changed their name. Because oh. there were so many Ole Olsons, he felt like the whole world was full of Ole Olsons. So he put down Ole Evan Rudd, and he added an E. And he did start the outboard Marine Corporation. They owned Johnson, Evinrude, Lawn Boy, uh, Cushman Scooters, Chainsaws. They, they were top of the world. Only, you know, and as you know, Evinrude just closed up within the past month. I was going to ask you what you thought, what you thought of that, if, if you yeah. were disappointed with your, considering your long history. Yeah, well, we, we still have a family that worked for us that was Evinrude dealers. and. What a deal now to get parts and try to stand behind warranties. You know, it's it's tough. And yeah. the people that bought from us took our word from it that, you know, this is a great motor, it's the best way to go. Mm -hmm. So they, they you know, bomb, Bombardier, however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah. The Canadians, I don't know if they really care how much public relations they destroy here. Yeah. But I would love to see somebody else buy it. The, I got to think someone buys the name at some point. Right? E the E-Tech engine, you know, was really supposed to be super great, two-cycle, light, yeah. fast. We will get into that. But the point is, we did go to, our, we went to Norway, up through the canals. I never realized what you go from Barcelona to Marseille, up through the Rhone Valley on the Rhone River. Mm -hmm. Then in the, the canal called the Rhone to Rhine Canal, you come to the Rhine River in Germany go to Holland, then you go up to Denmark through the Kiel Canal, which goes through the country of Denmark, and then through Sweden and then to Norway. So you go all the way through. How long was that trip? A month or oh, more. He says with such affection. And I was in a car. She rented a car. hundred miles is nothing. So I toured with a French lady and my two girls and my sister. We each took turns going on the boat with him. A lot of times we couldn't find them. Well, you see, I learned to swear in French. In French, in French. <laughs> the canals, old, old canals, they don't necessarily follow the big city roads. And you're out in the, in the boondocks. We didn't have radio communication. She rented a Ford Escort 
I guess I didn't, I, I didn't have a GPS or to give her a handheld radio. In those days, we'd have to install a radio in the car, I guess. So she couldn't, I'd say, well, I'm going up Leon tonight. I might be in Leon. And she'd drive the car and go try and look for us. But anyway, she had another adventure the whole summer, but it was one of the happiest summers. It was crazy. <laughs> dinner, dinner in Spain and France is late, 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 you know? I, know. I heard that. <laughs> and, a couple of bottles of wine, of course, you wouldn't have dinner without her. When you went to Holland, you didn't check in. Oh. I, I finally gave up looking for him because Holland has a lot of canals. Mm -hmm. So I went to the hotel and I explained to the, I was looking for my husband. He said, don't worry, I'll find him for you. He sent the police and he thought they were after him because he didn't check in. You know, I was supposed to clear customs. Uh -huh. And I look at this line of ships and, and customs between Germany and Holland, and I, I'm going to kill a day. And they were crazy because we had a New York State registration. It's a little ticket like your car, mm -hmm. and I'm showing them. You must. These papers for the ship. You know, the, the captain, the crew. The, yeah. And then you had to go through it. So I didn't bother. Yikes. Took down the American flag, and Smart. I had my daughter Andrea with me that night, and we had tied up, and I looked up on the dock, I see two uniforms coming, and Andrea was like 17, I said, Andrea, I think we're going to be locked up, we're going to jail tonight, because it says in the book, they'll impound your boat, you know, and lock you up if you don't three clear customs. So they come to the boat, Mr. Grover, no, Herr Grover. I think it was Herr Grover, maybe it was German. Oh, man. Herr Grover, come with us. And I get in the car and I figure, oh, like walking on. <laughs> they take me to her hotel and the cops, they were just friends with the hotel. A lot of these small towns, everybody knows each other. Yeah, yeah. And the guy said, thank you. And we all had dinner. <laughs> that went on night after night after night. And oh it, it, we opened the locks in the country. The country, these are hand operated. You walk around. Of course, the farmers paid a few pennies to take care of the locks. August is hot in Europe. Mm. France shuts down. <laughs> There's nothing. So the guys wouldn't even bother getting out of their cabins. So they say, You open them yourself. So we'd walk around and open them and close them. And, Anyway, we're getting off the subject, Evelyn. I'm interested in what happened, you know, after after this story, because I've, I've heard this version of it. One so. year later, though, we didn't stay for this because our trip was finished in the fall. We okay, got so, you, to, so you left the boat there. Yes. Flew home, and you came back the next summer. That yes. That boat was spooky. I would get off that boat and would never get it back on it. He met a Frenchman crossing. Did he tell you that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the hurricane was... Claudette, mm -hmm. and we left the boat there five years, and I said, when you want, just send it back. And we were crossing over the bridge, and the boat was under the bridge. Well, in Jersey. We didn't know it was coming. No, what happened? It was spooky. <clears throat> I plan to go back and do a lot more cruising. We like the canal cruising, and you mm -hmm. could go all then. Europe got in trouble, and there was a lot of risk involved going around like that. So. We told the guy that kept the boat in the town of Jorvik in Norway, it was near Olehammer, wherever the big Olympics was, was way inland where this guy grew up. You'd think he's on a boat. So the guy's name of the veranda was Peter Bourdais, and I said, Peter, just keep the boat, I'll come back. And year after year after year, five years went by, and I called him, I said, you, you've had the boat for five years, and, and uh, I want to get it back here. And, uh, what can we do? How much is it worth? He said, I'll tell you, I'll take the motors off, and you, I'll ship the boat back and pay for everything. I had no idea. The motors were free, but even retail in those days, they might have been five grand, I doubt it. So he took them and he, he said, I'll find the cheapest way, and so it's fine. We're coming over the Verrazano Bridge, the Verrazano, and I'm in a high rig, and I'm looking over the side, and there's a container ship going underneath. 
and I'm dreaming along. She's asleep. I said, how the hell did they fit my boat? Because those containers in those days were eight foot wide. Mm. Now they've made weird containers. Basically, they, my boat was about nine outside. And I looked down, and they had left the container out of the top load, and there was my boat jammed in the top, nothing around it. And I woke her up and I said, Artie, that, that my boat just went under the bridge. She says, you're crazy. I said, well. It's a common theme. I said, when we come off onto the Belt Parkway, see if we get the name off that ship, you know, because she's going very slowly on the, mm -hmm. and it was like the Atlantic Queen or something. And we the were next. We were in the van and we were on the top level. Yeah, so the I next. see it perfectly and I said, you're insane. So the next morning they called from Jersey. We have a boat for you to pick up here. So that boat always has a spirit. Uh, when I got into Oli's birthplace, I slept on the boat the first night to, to have his spirit come there. That's unbelievable. You, you begin yeah, to, it makes a full you, circle story. You're beginning to worry a little. I know. It's, I'm just going to back up a little bit, but it's nothing to do with that. It's, <laughs> Anyway, the boats, go by. It's, uh, <laughs> the boat's on Woodcliffe. Did you see it? I did. Okay, it's I getting did. shabby, and Dante doesn't want to refinish it. <laughs> He's too busy making big money. No, no comment. Uh, <laughs> She's the one who can blow the smoke away and see the target bullseye right there. That's nice. I can see that. Well, Should I tell him about the two years before? I told her how you ran up to Nova Scotia because I was going with the Ted Burkhart in our bathing suits. We were going in our bathing suits. We didn't have any food. But we could get lobsters up there cheap. You, you, embar <laughs> you embarrassed me, I've you seen know. That look. You really embarrassed me. Look. <laughs> look out, it's going to get dangerous now. <laughs> I had a 16 year old daughter, and when I went up there, he asked my daughter to go out drinking with him. Said, my first mate. Uh, there we go. That's that's the full story we came here for. I knew it was something. Bit of a partier, huh? Okay, that's enough. You're not very for, you're not very forgiving, are you? I, I can still see you getting angry right now. <laughs> I'm very forgiven at this point. Okay, that's it, Mom. You're ruining, you're ruining my story. You're ruining my story. I'm you're, no longer. You're, you're, you're not. I, I'm going to come back for your version of everything. Okay. All right. Where were we? Oh man. Well, we could. Uh, you know, I think I think the original book did a great job talking about the hurricane, but. You know, and I don't, so we don't need to go into like the exact the exact details, but how? But I would like to know honestly. I mean, how scared were you? Were you ever? Did you ever think you know this boat's in danger of, well, of breaking up? Well, according to Al, I told him that one night in the hurricane that uh, we were going to say goodbye to each other because I really didn't think I was going to live through the night. And I said, you know, I've been very lucky. I've been blessed. Everything I had, and all. And he said, what about me? I'm, I'm still young. I guess he wasn't married. Dante wasn't married either. I'm not ready to die. I said, <laughs> anyway, uh, it seemed like, you know, it's pitch black. We very seldom even ran with running lights unless we saw another ship. And with the radar reflector on the masthead, they still never saw you. They never saw you. You'd be talking to them about five miles off your port bow. Do you see us on radar? No. Well, the radar is going way over our heads, you know. It's So they, none of the ships really see you uh, as far as running lights and stuff like that. So the boat is black, the dash lights maybe, but uh, the waves were always weird in the bad weather. You'd expect the following sea, and we let her run following sea, and my boat doesn't broach, it just surfs, you know. So that was the way we would run, but every once in a while a wave would hit you broadside. I say, where the hell are these coming from? You can't see anything except you can see the white water defined from the blue water. 
as it breaks and it's like a cloud you know you could say boy that's a white cloud coming no it's the surf on top of one of these and when they hit you sideways it's just shock terrific shock and boat would go up on our ends and I don't know if I really thought we were gonna uh, get drowned that night but uh, I was probably questioning the survival you know and he got very indignant I'm not ready to die I said well neither am I but we're gonna do our best <laughs> I would say uh, you know in the book I got one page where it said, you, you absolutely do everything you can possibly do. You're exhausted. Your mind has gotten to the point where it says, whatever the hell is going to happen, let it happen, you know? And you just sort of let go. And it didn't happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of this is personal, and a lot of it is feelings may be... Uh, sort of uh, not embarrassing but as honest as possible that that's that's the feelings you get you know yeah and uh, you never get too cocky that you're gonna you, you you're saying to the good lord i'm gonna do five million things when i get home i'll never do that again i'll never drink again i'll never fight with my wife <laughs> And of course, you kept all of those. Promises. Oh, and more. Yes, up to six thousand. <laughs> yeah. So, as far as really thinking, we were done. I think one of the one of the hardest things to do was to pull out that first day, to pull out of the harbor, mm. and see the land disappearing, and not knowing, you know, if you miss the Azores, it's going to be almost 3,000 miles. I think the Azores was 1,700 miles. So we didn't, we weren't that confident. And, and I guess I've, uh, I've given you more than you want to get. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water. <laughs>